Interfaces. Now, Gaining Ground is the series that we're in right now. And the purpose of this series is that summer, for many of us, is a time where like, we can finally take a breather from the busy year and downshift a lot of different things. But we actually have the opportunity to further relationships in that downshift, which one of those relationships that we have the opportunity to further is our relationship with Jesus. And so Gaining Ground is the chance for us to be reminded of truths that allow us to keep growing in our faith, moving forward in our relationship with Jesus and becoming more like him in the process. I'm so excited to have the chance to talk about something super significant that I've been learning this year that we're gonna get to in a little bit. But before I get there, do we have any coffee fans in the room? Any coffee fans? Yeah, I see a bunch of hands up there. Love coffee. I love that Columbus has great coffee. Do you agree? Columbus has great coffee. Fox in the snow to name one. Parable, if you're like a very elitist coffee person, I know that there's gonna be some hands for Parable. Stoffs is a great option. The aesthetic is great. Vibes are immaculate. But sometimes, guys, you don't have time for the vibes. You don't have time for the aesthetic. So you do what I know all of us have done, and you get in the huge drive-through line and you get Starbucks. We've all been there. I will say, Starbucks, gets a bad rap, I think. There are really pretentious people who are like, Starbucks? <laughs> Starbucks? No, Starbucks does its job. That's why there's like 10,000 of them across the entire world. Starbucks does its job. It's not, I was gonna say cheap coffee. It's not cheap coffee, not at all. But it's coffee that people like, it's fast, and there are definite pros to Starbucks. Like the Starbucks app, who has the Starbucks app? I love the Starbucks app. Just found out about it like a couple of months ago. Man, it's great, it's faster. You can just walk in, pick up your order, plus your name's in the app so there's no typos. I got Garrison like 40% of the time. It's like, it's Harrison with an H. I've had Harrison be spelled H-E-R-I-S-E-N before, which is like five letters wrong. Terrible. Another pro for me, the iced brown sugar oat milk shake and espresso. Can I get an amen for that drink? Yes. So good. I love the ice brown sugar oat milk shake and espresso. It is amazing. Don't care if I sound basic. I am cool with your opinions. But there are times I go to order that drink in particular or my other staple, the caramel ribbon crunch frappuccino, anyone? I do it all. Black coffee, frappuccinos, I do it all. But sometimes I go to order what I want and the classic thing happens. The barista's like, hey, we're like out of oat milk. Do you want to order something different or out of oat milk? Which I didn't go with a backup. Like, I'm not in line with a backup. So in that moment, maybe you've been there, I have to, like, look at the menu and just be like, sorry. So many options. I'll be ready in just a second, sorry. And it's the worst. Like, I know they can't see me, but it's, like, the worst feeling in the world. It's kind of like when McDonald's says their ice cream machine is broken. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's one of those times where I'm like, I can't decide. It's a seemingly small decision, but it's caught me off guard. So sometimes I just drive away because I can't make it, and I just get coffee somewhere else. Anyway, in the grand scheme of things, coffee orders, small decisions. There are way bigger decisions that we have to make at certain times in our life. For example, there are people in here, friends of mine, who've entered the housing market this year. That's like a way bigger decision than a coffee drink. There's career decisions that some of you have probably made. There's family decisions that you have to make. There's like 
location decisions, like where do we want to live? Where do we want to have a family? Where do we want our kids to go to school decisions that we have to make? There's goal-based decisions, work-life balance decisions that we make. These decisions are, are riskier at times. There's more investment that you have to give to them. So they can seem a little bit scarier on the front end, but we always give them the time necessary and make them because of what they can lead to. And so we have these small decisions, like coffee orders, and then we have these bigger decisions. And then today I want to talk about Daniel 3 decisions. I want to talk about Daniel 3 decisions. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Daniel 3. That is where we are going to be this morning. And if you're new to the Bible or have never read the Bible before, don't worry. You can turn a little bit over halfway in your Bible and find it there. If you see books like Psalms and Proverbs, you need to go a little bit further. If it's a bunch of names that you're like, I'm not sure how you know how to pronounce this, you've probably gone a little too far, like Obadiah and Habakkuk and stuff like that. But anyway, Daniel 3. The story of Daniel 3 is centered around three men whose names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember those names. We're going to get to know those guys very well as we look at this text. We're going to learn about who they are. We're going to learn about what they do. We're going to learn about why they do it, how they got there, why they matter, and ultimately, we're going to watch them make a decision that has incredibly dramatic effects on their life. Incredibly dramatic effects. But before we see that, let's start reading in verse 1. If you're there, great, follow along with me. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all of the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and a herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music. Sounds like a dope band if you ask me. Zither? Thank goodness. When you hear this music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Another key player in this story, as you can probably tell, is King Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe you've heard of him if you've read this story before. Maybe you've even heard of him if you took, like, a history class that was based around this time period. He's a prominent name in history. And it's important that we recognize what King Nebuchadnezzar's motivation is here. Because he wants to see with this statue how loyal his people, the Babylonians, would be to him, not just, like, as a king, but also as someone to be worshipped, someone to be like revered and respected. This was a decision that he made that was motivated by power. He craved power. And so he builds this statue. And every time this like super outdated band of instruments starts playing music, everybody who hears it is ordered to fall down on their faces and worship it every single time. And as he said, like, the consequences of not doing so are deadly. 
a furnace of blazing fire. So naturally, the decision pretty much everybody's going to make is what we see in verse 7 if we keep reading. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some Chaldeans, so this is another word for the Babylonians, some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. And whoever does not fall down and worship, you said will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So here comes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 3 is like making it very clear that these aren't just your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill guys. These are big nays. Like, they are in place managing the province of Babylon, appointed by the king. So if they're guilty of what they're being accused of by the Babylonians here, that's not just going to be forgotten about. There's ripple effects and repercussions to this, not just with, like, the consequence that would be in front of them, right, but also with, like, where it leaves the people. New leaders would be put in place. Word would spread about this. It's going to affect a lot of people if they're guilty. A lot of people. But for now, all that King Nebuchadnezzar has is an accusation. That's all he's got. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are still good. They can't be punished yet. But the accusation itself is enough for King Nebuchadnezzar to start asking some questions. And we see that happen in verse 13. Then in a furious rage, we're reading now, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar asks them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that can rescue you from my power? It almost seems like the king is talking to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like almost in like this like charming way, trying to nudge them the right direction. Like he almost wants it for them. Doesn't it like, it sounds like he's like, come on, like the easy option, just do that. Like do this. And the easier option here for them is to just fall down and worship the statue like he wants. The king doesn't have proof yet. It's just an accusation, right? Like he hasn't seen anything for himself. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could just like fall down in front of it and get away with what they're accused of and walk out of there untouched, unharmed. But that's not who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. It's not who they were. Even though they'd risen to power and influence in Babylon, they weren't Babylonians. Like the text said earlier, these are Jews managing the province of Babylon. 
And since they were Jewish, they had different rituals, they had different morals, they had different habits, and they had different beliefs than the people living in Babylon. And the key reason for this is because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego placed utmost importance to obedience to God. They believed in God. And one of their core beliefs about their God is that he is to be worshipped alone and falling down in front of this statue would ultimately lead them to a place of sin against God. But if they don't do it, if they maintain obedience to God and they stay standing, there's a furnace of blazing fire waiting for them. So what do you do? Right? Like, what do you do in that situation? We see their response to the king in verse 16 if we keep reading. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you, as king, to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Just imagine, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're standing in front of one of the most powerful leaders that arguably the world has ever seen. And they make their allegiance known, they make their response known, and it's not to him. It's true, like they work for him, they report to him, they manage things for him. But ultimately, the allegiance of these three men lies elsewhere. So they tell him no. They tell him, if our God that we serve and that we love exists, then that God actually has the power to rescue us from this furnace and from you. They're convinced of this to the point where they even say, even if he doesn't rescue us, we're not going to do it. We're not going to fall down in front of this thing. We're not changing our minds. Guys, that's bold faith. Death is awaiting them, yet they say we're not going to do it. And I wish that I could say I would have been this bold. Like, I want to stand up here and say, like, yeah, I would have done the same thing. I really want to say that. But if I, like, do a true heart check, if I look at my life and I look at hard situations and how I've walked through them in my life, and I ask myself, how would I have responded? Do you know what I would have done? I would have fallen like that. But what's actually probably even more true is that I wouldn't have even gotten to this point that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were at right now. I don't even think I would have gotten here because I think that I would have been so scared for myself and so fearful that I would have fallen down when everybody else did. I would have fallen down a long time before I ever found myself in front of the king. I wish I could stand up here and tell you something different about me, but I don't think I can. If it were me in this story, instead of Shadrach and instead of Meshach and Abednego, Daniel 3 would read a lot different. These three set an unwavering example of trust that like if you know Jesus we should follow this like we should look at this and say that is what I want my life to be about this is what I want to be but it's this type of faith 
that ultimately leads them to a fiery furnace. Look at verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary, and he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers and robes and head coverings and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Now, regardless of whether you've heard Daniel 3 before, or if it's your first time, we're going we're gonna to pause there as we're reading. And I want all of us to place ourselves in this story. You made your decision to disregard the king, and suddenly you're being tied up without warning, and you're just getting carried towards your death this furnace that's seven times hotter than it has been for anybody else who's been thrown into there. You're getting closer and you feel the air getting hotter and hotter and you're tied up so you can't do anything but watch as the ones who actually tied you up are being swallowed up by the flames and killed knowing that you're next and your stomach tightens up. And the smoke and the heat causes you to be unable to breathe. And at the edge of that furnace, I want to ask you, where would your head be at? What would you be thinking? I don't know about you, but I could be easily convinced that in that moment, God was not with me. I could be easily convinced that God didn't care about me. I could be easily convinced that God had just all of a sudden forgotten what was going on in my life. I could be easily convinced that I was alone and hopeless. Now, the story doesn't say how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego felt, but I can imagine, based on their track record and what we know is true of them, that just as they were in front of the king, that they were as convinced of who their God was, which seems crazy because all it's done is led them to a furnace. But what we're about to read shows us that they're not crazy. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied not bound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. 
Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no god who was able to deliver like this. And then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make a risky decision that pays off. God rescues them. And like, think about the details of it. They walk out of this fire that's seven times hotter than customary and they're unaffected by it. They don't even smell like fire. It's amazing what God did. And now because of this story, Nebuchadnezzar is telling everyone, this God deserves glory. Don't speak anything wrong of him. God's getting glory from what he did through these guys. It's amazing. But there may be people who are here and who are listening to this story and saying, like, that's great for them. But I feel like I'm in the fire right now and God's not doing anything. I've been hoping, and I've been praying, and I've been wishing that things in my life could be different, and nothing has changed, and it's not fair. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego might have been rescued, but what about the times where you're not? What about the times where you want God to do something specific in your life, and you ask him to do it, and he doesn't? What about the times where you feel hopeless and angry and confused, and frustrated, and it feels like God just isn't listening or doesn't care. What do you do then? And friends, what I want to tell you this morning is that when you feel that way, and in those moments, there is hope that exists, and I want to spend the rest of our time talking about that, because it's the most important thing we could talk about. Remember when King Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fire and saw four men instead of three? Remember when that happened? He was confused because he throws three men who are tied up into the furnace, and now he sees four walking around unaffected. Who was the fourth one? Like, that's the mystery of the story. Like, who is the fourth man walking around with them, unaffected, seemingly not realizing there's a fire going on all around? The one who looks like a son of the gods. Who's the fourth man? The fourth man is Jesus. In the most hopeless moment of their lives, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could not save themselves, they didn't have to. Because Jesus sees them in their suffering and enters in and stands with them in the fire, saving them where they couldn't save themselves. And that wouldn't be the last time that Jesus enters into the world to save people because hundreds of years after this, Jesus is going to come back and not just to save three people from a furnace of blazing fire. He comes back to save a world who is guilty of their sin. And he does this by dying a criminal's death on a cross, a death that we deserve for our sin against a holy God. 
And ultimately, Jesus would rise again from the dead three days later, showing that he was victorious over sin, death, and hell the entire time. Jesus will win victory, and he already has. We get to look back on what he accomplished on that cross. But before the resurrection, and actually in the moments leading up to his death, we get a glimpse in the Bible of Jesus where we get to like see the emotions that he's feeling as his time is coming. And you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but it's in Luke 22. And before we read it, there's something I want you to keep in mind. Jesus knew what was coming the entire time in this scene. He'd predicted it already multiple times. He was aware that he was going to be arrested and mocked and found guilty of sins he didn't commit and beaten and tortured and hung on a cross and he would die the worst death imaginable. He knew all of this was coming. And he had all the power in the world to save himself from it and stop it. But the anguish of what was awaiting him was so significant that the Bible describes that Jesus is sweating drops of blood. So how was Jesus feeling in this moment? Guys, Jesus is terrified. He's terrified of what's coming. Yet amidst the anxiety and the fear that he felt, he prays to God, and in Luke twenty-two forty-two, it says that Jesus knelt down and began to pray. Father, If you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Another way that you could translate that and say that, Jesus knelt down and began to pray, God, I know you can do it. I know that you have the power to rescue me from this, but even if you don't, I'll trust you. Even if you don't, not my will, but yours be done. What Jesus is saying in this scene is absolutely identical to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said standing in front of a powerful king. Yet unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who God does rescue them, Jesus is told now. He's arrested, he's beaten, he's tortured, He's mocked, and he's killed on that cross. But what I want us to hear is that God said no to Jesus because the no that led to Jesus' ultimate death meant life for you and me on the other side of it. Because Jesus rose victoriously from death, and if Jesus hadn't suffered to get there, our suffering right now would mean nothing. But because of the suffering that Jesus endured, And because he came out on the other side victorious, we don't suffer for nothing anymore. When you know Jesus, there is hope that surpasses this life and all of the hardship and the pain and the lack of understanding and the suffering that you walk through. There is hope on the other side of it because Jesus has one hope. I don't know for all of you like what your suffering does look like, what it has looked like, what it could look like in the future. Like, I don't know the details for every single person in here. But I can assure you that your suffering is not God punishing you. And I can assure you that your suffering is not God being distant from you. Christian, we see the cross 
And we can have proof and evidence that Jesus would not allow you to endure anything that he wasn't willing to endure himself. Pain, he's felt it. Rejection, he's felt it. Insignificance, he's felt it. Loneliness, he's felt it. Not getting what you wanted, prayed for, or expected, he's felt it. God is not absent from the pain that you're feeling. He gets it. He's been there, and in fact, he emphasizes with it. Before we close, there's one lingering question from this story that I I read it for the first time, and I thought it was worth addressing. Because what I was wondering is if God, like, was powerful enough the entire time to save Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego ultimately from the death that was waiting for them, then couldn't he have done something earlier? Like, why, why did God wait to rescue them until they were in the fire? Like, God obviously could have just, like, done something in front of the king or even before that so that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't have had to get that close. If God's powerful enough, why didn't he do something earlier? And ultimately, he could have. He is that powerful. But he didn't. He chose to lead Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, and that matters for us today because to expect a life that is absent of suffering is unrealistic. It won't happen. And I even think that there wouldn't be one person who's walked in this door this morning who would say that their life has been absent of suffering. I don't think one person in here could say that. But what I know is true is that there's not one person in here who has lived a day where God was absent from them. Whether you know Jesus or you're not sure where you're at, there's not been a day where God hasn't been involved in the events of your life. He cares about you. He sees you. He knows you. And he loves you. Daniel 3 is incredibly specific about Jesus in the fire. Not around the fire. Not like hovering over the fire in this mystical way. Not calling people out of the fire saying, no, I'm here. I'm over here. Come to me. He is standing in the fire with them. It is specific about that because it's true that we have a God who can rescue us from our suffering. That's true. But for the Christian, hope does not lie in the lack of suffering that's present in your life. Your hope lies in the fact that when you suffer, you can look to a king who suffered in your place and know that he's with you. That's where your hope lies. In Shadrach's most hopeless moment of his life, Jesus was in the fire with him. In Meshach's most hopeless moment of his life, Jesus is in the fire with him. In Abednego's most hopeless moment of his life, Jesus was in the fire with him. And so you can trust that in the most hopeless moments of your life, there is a God standing in the fire with you too. Let me pray that we could trust that. Father, I'm thankful for the imagery of of a Savior who who deserves glory and honor and praise, yet stands in the fire and leaves behind heaven's throne to be there. I'm thankful that you saw it fit to have Jesus come when he did 
so that now 2,000 years on the other side of that, we can look back and see that his death was not in vain. Our suffering is not final, and that we have hope that goes so much further beyond what we can see right now. There will be a day where, where you come and you wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there won't be any more death or mourning or grieving. But until that day comes, we'll suffer with the hope and the knowledge that you're here with us. We'll suffer with open hands knowing that you wouldn't call us to do something you weren't willing to do yourself. Give us the, the faith to do that. Give us the eyes to see that when we're mourning. And for the person in here who feels like right now, things couldn't get worse. Things have been terrible to the person that feels hopeless. God, I pray that the gospel, the news of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his ultimate return would look beautiful this morning. Would we all be in awe of the length that you went to show us how much you love us and how much you care for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.